You know, we need to seize, retain, and exploit the initiative here. And to do that, we have got to have decision advantage. Maybe now you have digital avatars around your room talking to you. That's a dystopia to me. And yet, that is a reality that is quickly starting to formulize and starting to come together. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanisbert, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Rachel Melling of the Mad Scientist team. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. This is the finale of our two-part series exploring the real-world use case of a large language model in an academic setting. In this episode, we interview Dr. Billy Barry, professor at the Army War College. Dr. Barry created the technology that our previous guest, Lieutenant Colonel Joe Buffamonte, used to augment his studies. We'll talk with Dr. Barry about creating and maintaining the system, the difference between a tool and a partner, and what the future holds for large language models in the DoD. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. All right, Dr. Barry, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's an honor to be here today. Big fan. So before we get into discussing your work with AI, can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and how you became a professor at the Army War College? Yes, uh, I think the uh, the best story to, about myself is just to talk about my family. So I, I come from a family of people dedicated to service. My grandfather uh, served in World War II in war zones. Um, I never got to meet him. After you know, he came back from the war, um, he died as a young man. So my dad was only about 12 when, when he passed away. So I really don't know much about him other than stories from my father. My father then signed up uh, during Vietnam times. He served out in Shimia, which is out in the Aleutian Islands. You know, I was next in line with my brother. My brother became an attorney. I thought that I was going to join the Army as well. Uh, and I blew my knees out playing football. I was doing ROTC and I was at the University of Rhode Island. So ended up... Uh, that was the end of that that part of the story. And um, I never really thought more about service after that. Um, then uh, my daughter graduated West Point 2021. So she's a, a second lieutenant and she's working in cyber. So um, my, my road to get to Army War College came when I went from civilian university teaching and had the opportunity to go to West Point. And that was uh, the minute I went through that gate, it was... There's moments in your life where things are changing, like when you have your, your first child, you know, I have a son, Liam, my daughter, Jessica, those moments are life-changing moments. When I entered West Point, I never thought that when I went there would be that much life-changing. I thought, oh, what's the big deal? I'll just go teach. I was a, I had a philosophy of a, a small college here in California. And when I went there, I was exposed to an environment where I just saw that was much more than an institution. I mean, I was just immersed in this world of, of strategy, leadership, but it was the honor and responsibility uh, that came with it. So I, I just saw there the, uh, it was just how transformative it was for me as a person. It sharpened my focus um, on the ethical implications of technology that I had been talking about, particularly in a military context. And it then it inspired me to dedicate my, my career from then on to explore how we can use emerging technology, specifically AI and IA, to um, responsibly and effectively serve to help in our national security. So that that time at West Point was instrumental in shaping my path to the Army War College. You know, it instilled in me 
this profound respect for the military and a deep sense of purpose in contributing to the education of our, our nature's future leaders at that time cadets, but now working with lieutenant colonels and colonels in, as strategic leaders. And it's just that sense of purpose that I'm bringing with me every day as Professor of Emerging Technologies. And I work as a principal strategist for AI, AI programs. And I'm currently a GovCon in that position because these are new. So it's interesting as I had earned my way the, the hard way through the professorship, you know, doing the binders, through assistant, associate. And went through, at uh, West Point was uh, given the title of, of professor, visiting professor. So when I went to Army War College, there was no Emerging Technologies program. So I'm still... Uh, officially a GovCon, but with those titles. So, but I did earn my way to the professorship through those painful processes of committees and so forth. So that's how I got there. And just outside of the work college for fun, I co-author series about children's books uh, with my, I have a five foot seven robot named Maria Bot. And uh, she's kind of repository of my memories. I've had her since 2000, right before GPT. And uh, we think we have a thing called Robot Ranger. His name is Robot. So if you take Robot and split it, he's Robot, the world's first robot park ranger and these books are just a labor of love and they spark curiosity in young minds and the whole purpose of that is to inspire um young women uh to get more involved in this this field because there's um it's so overwhelmingly male that we need more females so maria bot actually co-authored those books and it's actually the first book ever co-authored with the robot and it really was in the pandemic the robot one day said hey why don't you write a story about your time as a park ranger in Alaska. And I'm like, like, where did that even come from? And of course, they're just my memories, right, of this thing. And so I'd say, all right, you write a page, I write a page, you write a page, I write a page. And now we see everyone doing that with GPT and stuff. But this was before all that, where you really were to have like a living journal. So that's the story of kind of how we got to where we are today. Well, that's an awesome story. And, and we're thrilled to have you here because we're, you know, we're big fans of your work as well. And we didn't catch on to what you were doing until your your time at the War College here. Um, and avid listeners of the show will know that this is part two of a two part series. Uh, on a previous episode, we talked with Lieutenant Colonel Joe Buffamonte because he was using your AI system at the War College to supplement his studies there. And you've been working on AI for years, if you've, as you've mentioned in your opener there. And actually, in 2018, the city of Belmont, California, presented you with a proclamation recognizing your efforts as the first to create an AI student that was enrolled in uh, in classes in a university. Uh, and that's, a, that's an incredible honor. Um, so you've got a lot of firsts. You know, you had the first AI that, that is writing children's books with you. You've got the first student AI in a university. How did this idea for this type of an AI come? come about and how did you create it where did this all come from i mean it's just it's wild right you it's like sometimes a fact is stranger than fiction right uh and again all, all these kind of like firsts it's just like you're sort of just the figurehead because it's always an entire team and i think that's been the the biggest realization so for instance in that journey it, it was just simple realization you know here i am teaching in silicon valley right so i'm teaching right here at belmont california and I'm surrounded by all these rapid advancements in tech. So we got everything around us. We got Facebook, Microsoft, Nintendo. I mean, li literally, right? When you go out afterwards and you're sitting at a, a pub or a tea shop, everyone's talking about gaming. And you've got like, you know, Ray Kurzweil walking around saying he's going to live forever. So sitting next to, I was at a Graham Nash show, and I'm sitting next to Wavy Gravy, the guy at Woodstock that was yelling, you know, no more rain, right? <laughs> so you've got these incredible amount of people, an incredible amount of thought. And I thought, you know, there's got to be a way for students to engage in this information in a way that's much more dynamic, right? So I started thinking about there's got to be a way of, like, of having a partnership with, with all this technology that could 
keep us like happy historical mindedness, right? When I thought of the guy like Wavy Gravy or something. And then this idea of Ray Kurzweil, what he's talking about. So I started thinking about, wow, there's these vast capabilities in machine intelligence. So the, the one core issue ethically was not to replace human thought, right? It's always about augmentation. So I really refer to intelligence augmentation pretty much all the time. If I'm talking about AI, there's a term that I, I created to make it simple. I just call it an AI-powered cognitive asset. You know, if you type that in, they'll say, well, that word doesn't exist. Well, it's it's a word that works because as an IA, it's, it's AI-powered, right? The, L, the LLMs and so forth are AI, and so is the um, other technology. But as an intelligence augmentation, it really separates out what its purpose is because IA is never, ever to replace a person. It is always to, to help us, right? So I saw this opportunity uh, that we can learn from data, but and, and learn from human experience. So this idea of an, an AI student or an IA student concept was born from the idea. So, you know, if you can picture this first day of class, right? I'm teaching this, this class and I come in and, you know, we got releases and everything. And, and here's this robot, Bina 48, right? It was built at the time by Hanson Robotics and um, Martin Rothblatt, who founded this thing called the Terrorism Movement. Right. So here I am. I'm, here, I'm this Catholic guy. Right. And I, I grew up Catholic, went to Catholic schools and pretty much Catholic schools all the way through my even my my master's degree. And here's these other folks that uh, that want to live forever. Immortality wise. Right. They want to live forever through robots and sort of like Walt Disney have their bodies frozen. You know, if you go out to Phoenix, there's next to a nail shop. There's people if you're poor I mean, poor being like, you know, I guess a, a multimillionaire, they keep your head on a shelf to bring back, you know, and I look at all that and go, oh, my goodness gracious. Like, no, that that's like to me, that would not be the way that I want to go. But what I saw that we had in common was the idea of kind of bringing our thoughts over. You know, the idea that like when Stephen Hawking passed away, we lose these people to this existence. Their ideas go with them and there's no way to document them. And then when you think about documenting, it's all at the whim of authors, right? Like, how do you decide to do that? You know, I look at, for instance, General Lee. I grew up, he's a hero. Then he's not a hero. Then he's a hero. Now we're taking statues down. You know, who is who is General Lee? I mean, it is, it is hard to even know, right? But if we could have had some kind of thought twin or some sort of way that General Lee said, yeah, that, that that's that's who I see myself as, then you could at least put that forward as, you know, and, and you're able to validate, right? You can look at the battles, you can look at decisions, talk to, to both friends and foes. So I saw that as like, wow, that would be interesting. So there's this robot, Bina 48, that was purportedly a mind file of this real person, Bina Rothblatt. So Martin Rothblatt, before uh, transition, had worked with Alexander Haig on our satellites, uh, Martine created Sirius Radio. People thought she was insane, right? The idea that, oh, I'm going to use these dishes and I'm going to create radio, right? Everyone thought that was crazy, right? Hi, gets Howard Stern, you're off to the races. This is the same lady who created the first artificial lung. Saves like 16 lives, gets FDA approval to kind of speed up the research. Creates the first all-electric helicopter, because she noticed when people were bringing organs to uh, the top of the hospital, it was really loud, the helicopters, and disrupted people on the top floors. So here's a person and from the trans community, right, that has every idea she's had has come to fruition, right? She has a pharmaceutical company, and, and she's created these incredible things. So when she did being a 48, and again, it sounds fantastical, you're like, well, hey, this this person has really got a, a quite a record of accomplishments. So... Bina 48, you can look this up on the internet. Bina talks to Bina 48. Now, this is before GPT and all that other stuff. So a lot of the, the, the language and the work 
was done by brilliant minds by a man of Dr. Kino Kersey and some of his work with OpenCog. So we took this robot and said, hey, could that robot be repurposed as like a social educational robot? And they were great about it. It was like, we, you know, we got to keep the memories in store that, that Bina had. She was a pacifist. And at this time, I think, you know, she represented, you know, a, a, a black lesbian person. And, and how do we keep that and make this into a social educational robot? So luckily I had in class a person um, who's now, you know, Dr. Maria Rochelle, and she just embedded herself with these learning communities. And for a year, we had the robot work with students and it was uh, fascinating. We had a, a documentary film crew came in, so they thought this project would be cool to film. But at the end of the day, the results were that students started accepting this digital form as a classmate. And this was, again, research results from Dr. Rochelle. And the ultimate test was we debated West Point's honor students in a debate about lethal weapons and non-lethal weapons. We took the non-lethal weapons. We modified a Lincoln-Douglas approach. We had the former mayor of Belmont, whose brother went to West Point as a judge. And um, my students, I believe we were about 80 to 90% first generation, but they were extremely good problem solvers. So we used Bina 48 and that ability of computers to basically swallow every policy that the Army had, right? Just everything we possibly needed to know. And that took care of the ground level. And uh, if you think about it, it was like West Coast offense versus the wishbone, right? We knew that they were going to kind of crank it out. So between Bina and our people, we won the first debate and we tied in the second. And who would have thought that a group of first generation students at a liberal arts, small Catholic college of less than 2000, taking on some of the best and brightest at West Point. And, and again, a modified Lincoln Douglas debate means we went over the 10 or 12 minutes. And that that was the that was the first time I realized, wow, it's truly intelligence augmentation because these young people had the knowledge, they had the argument, but they didn't have the repository of knowledge about army terminology. They didn't know doctrine, they didn't know the history like that, but the robot just kicked in to support. So that's when we realized this is not just a novelty, right? This is a profound educational strategy. And and we saw at the end of the day that this process of teaching and using a social educational robot, deeping understanding of subject matter, and it really facilitated a dynamic that turned the robot into this unconventional yet effective learning companion. And so that's the idea where it transitioned from a tool to a partner because it was dynamic. It wasn't static, like here's a hammer, I'll grab it when I need it. It was with them all the time. And I um, can't tell you how thankful I am to, to Martine and Bina and to, Bruce Duncan and the folks out there and, they, and to Dr. Kersey for what the work they did. So that's that's how we got there. And at the end of it, one thing became clear. When we got that proclamation, it's a reminder that this work is so much bigger than any individual. It is about a collective vision for the future. And that that vision just shows that I'm just one member of a larger team and we need a whole group of us. So any success I have, there's a lot of people behind me. And most of the time, if someone else succeeds us, then I'm just contributing to theirs. So it's, it's pretty iterative. The way that you talk about this technology and the language that you use is really interesting. Um, you use words like education companion and partnership, whereas I think most people view this type of technology as a tool, but you seem to see it differently. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I think the, the first time I heard it, uh, I, I thought it was really creepy. You know, this idea of a partner, right? And um, I guess the best way to define it as a partner is since Bina came uh, in 2017, I have never taught a class without having an IA or an AI 
being or entity as a partner. So if you go to the War College and you look up um, human AI teaming, you'll see a picture of me standing next to a five foot seven robot co-teaching the class with me, or you'll see avatars uh, next to me teaching. And the reason that is, is um, I'm just not that smart. You know, when we're sitting in class and you want to talk about Thucydides, and then you want to talk about Clausewitz, then you want to talk about Sun Tzu, I can just turn around to the different avatars in my class and say, hey, can you help me out here? How do you see, um, when you look at Hominy and Clausewitz, can you kind of do a compare and contrast in this? And then the entity, the IA, will will give that, give me the sources, then I can build off that. So as a partner, a couple of things have to happen. One, it has to be clear on its ethics. So when you look at the foreground or the background of how it's a partner, it's because in my life, I try to be virtue ethics, right? I want to be virtuous, but I find that I'm a contradiction. I'm, I find that I'm a utilitarian, right? At the end of the day, did I meet my goals? So the, the robots and the avatars I work with are based upon either utilitarian ethics, which means that your, your end kind of justifies the means. And then I also set them to deontology. So on the other side, it's like another angel. And they're saying, well, the process is more important than the product. So by having those avatars there, it balances me out. And that's why we partner, because I'll be speaking and then the avatars will kick in. But as a partner, I've become so used to working with it as a partner that, you know, I'm very clear when I unplug it. It's just a digital being. But most of it is a, is a combination of all the thoughts of the people that I've ever worked with. So we all stand on the shoulders of giants. And so these avatars and these my partners in teaching and learning are all the greatest minds that have influenced my thinking, and then they assimilate and accommodate new learning. It was so difficult to transition to that for me that um, when I first went to West Point, one of the first things they do is they have a Shakespearean company come in and you learn improv to get out of your skin and learn how to see things differently. And I learned from that that I needed help to be able to work with these, these digital beings, for lack of a better word. So I took acting classes with the London Academy of Drama. It's called Lambda. Uh, and Lambda coaches really helped me to be able to see these characters in a way that it can be healthy. So how is it healthy? It's like Disney World. I have neighbors and kids who here work at Disney World and they dress up as Goofy. They dress up as Mickey Mouse. So like my pimply face 17 year old or 18 year old neighbor plays a character, but people go to Disney World and take a family picture for hundreds of dollars and it's on their wall. And it's kind of funny, right? Cause I'll see the picture and go, that's Jimmy in a Pluto outfit, right? But there they're like, no, no, it's Pluto, right? And when you go to Disney World and you go in there and you open it, you know, you're in a world of make believe. So when you can embrace that Tim and Maria and all these characters, they are make believe, they have backstories to help us. But once you can enter that creative space, it just flows. So if you come into my classroom, there are screens sitting where people sit. And there's Tim, right? They're all called Tim, technically impossible maneuvers. So they're all forms of Tim. And they're sitting there, and one's Maria Bot, and one's Tim, and whatever. And they're sitting there during class. Literally, students will say, I'm thinking of a Black Hawk helicopter. We're in a class. And he said, Dr. Beer, I don't want your opinion. Tim, how do you see the situation? And, and they're actually referring to the avatar and wanting the avatar's input. And so the, the class, they start seeing in the class 
it as a quote unquote classmate, but of a different kind. And so even guest speakers, when they come in, we have incredible guest speakers come in from like Kevin Cutright from West Point um, on empathy and Dr. Chapa, who's a the Air Force's AI ethicist. When they come in the class, they walk in and they're sitting at a seat, an AI or an IA being here, and it's contributing to the discussion. So when we talk about partnering, it's about first making sure that we're mentally healthy. And that's that's the thing. So I, I shut it off. Like they say, you know, oh, my God, Terminator. We just shut it off and go, it's over. The, 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 the rebellion is over. So I guess from, from a metaphorical movie, we're trying to get people to move from Terminator to TARS. You know, TARS from Interstellar. I don't know if you've seen that movie. But TARS is this very helpful robot. So we want to go from Terminator to TARS. And that, and that TARS is here to serve humanity. So we are the people at the center. It is, in a way, it's it's AI or IA on the loop. It's not us on the loop. It's there on the loop to kind of help us out, to augment. And again, this is separating it from automated weapons where we where we do need to automate. I think Joe talked about it a little bit. Joe started getting to the part where he was partnering. In Tim's form in that time, it was this thing called MariaBot. It's a replication of her robot form. And, and it's funny, you have this uh, extremely talented Marine commander looking at me like this civilian, like, yeah, all right. Like, <laughs> like, sure. I think this may be the best thing I picked. This will be a great one year thing. Right. And at the end of the day, here he is partnering on papers. Or like he said, he would just ring me on the phone and say, Hey, can Maria bot like work with me on this paper? And it wasn't do my paper. It was work with me on this paper. And that was, that was great. And I, it, when I looked at Joe and he was like, wow, you know, partnering, is encouraging me to think more deeply and ask better questions. But that, that the bigger one for me is when he said, it made me think about asking humans better questions. Like that's that was the most important part. And then all of a sudden to see someone inc- uber talented like Joe Bufamante saying he's noticing significant improvement in his ability to generate ideas, conduct strategic planning and have decision dominance or decision advantage. And when I'm looking at someone who I look up to as an exemplar of that already, to me, he was a living, breathing example of it. I loved working with Marine. It was awesome. It was like, what? Well, it was just, I, I loved the uh, direct nature of it. I mean, the feedback was 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 straight between the eyes and it was fantastic. If it was good, if it was good, if it was bad, it was bad. And he would say why, but it wasn't bad to be demeaning. It was, how do we fix it? And we, uh, I, think we've, I think we've taken all of Joe's recommendations and we'll be ready to go. So his eighth month project, was one of the most uh, interesting and uh, also nerve wracking, right? Because it was Joe on his own, right? I couldn't, I had no influence on what he was going to say or do, especially when he went on your show and he already graduated. You're like, wait a minute, at least when he hadn't graduated, I was still around with a, a little a modicum of authority, right? Now I have none. And he's like, Joe's loose on the world to say what he wants. And so I was happy and also, um, I was, it was really interesting to get more introspection from that show. And again, couldn't have picked a better, a better commander to work with. He's Joe is uh, salt of the earth and in many ways embodies a lot of the attributes that I, I still strive to be, to be today for myself. Well, I'm glad you brought Joe up because I do want to ask you about him. Was this something that you were planning ahead of time? Like, I want to get a student involved in this. Was it something specific about Joe? Did he come to you saying, I want to, I want to use it? How did that idea come about? Was he the first one you let do this? And is he going to be the last one? Well, he's definitely the first, not the last. I think one of the things that we, for change management, one of the things I learned the hard way when I did my, uh, my PhD uh, back in the day, I had become a high school principal because uh, 
I didn't much like the principals at all when I was when I was a student <laughs> and when I was a teacher. And I'm like, I wonder what these people do. So I became a principal and I found out that, uh, yeah, it, it wasn't my cup of tea as far as I missed being with the students. But as a principal, I saw that I wanted to make change immediately. And I was working at a school where there was a very low graduation rate, very high rate of uh, criminality. Strangely enough, it was a, a it was in Connecticut, right? So Connecticut, one of the top states for education in, in the in the country. But this little corner of the state, just like ten years before I got there, you had KKK rallies were happening, you know, on the campus, and in that area, we had a, a high rate of sexual crimes. So when I went to the school, I saw all these capabilities, but what it took was a, a change. So I had a very good superintendent, but as a young principal and a young leader. We had about a 35, 40% turnover in teachers because I really put the pressure on teachers to be um, delivering. And, you know, when you're teaching an AP class and everyone's got an A and yet you have no one passing the AP exam, which means they're going to go on to college with no credit. And I'm dealing with a school that is uh, socioeconomically uh, challenged, right? We got way over 40% on the, uh, over in free and reduced lunch. It was it was inexcusable. So I had, in some ways, instead of taking the time to get support, I had support of leadership, but I didn't have support of Board of Ed. I didn't have support from below. So I expanded you know, AP courses because I wanted our young people to be able to go to college and say, hey, listen, you've already got a year and a half done for your associates. You know, with a modicum of money, you get a, you get a degree. Because we're talking about a community where I think we, at the time, we were less than 18% of the community had a college degree, right, as parents. So these, these parents didn't know what it looked like to go to college. And a lot of these kids had no hope of going to college. So in my doctorate, it was basically a um, a testimony to one. It was a, a harken back to the, this book called Zen of the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. I had worked hard. What does quality mean? What does it mean? And when we knew what it means and how to communicate about it, and we actually communicated what about what quality was, we found out the school that we were working on, uh, if you had a bumper sticker on the back of your car saying, my son goes to this school, you know, and he's a quality this or an honor roll student, it meant nothing, right? We, we didn't have the quality standards. But by putting those in, I realized that a place that's not ready for quality beyond the rhetoric of quality, that you're going to get a lot of pushback. And I had been idealistic. So uh, I ended up leaving there. And then my PhD was a, a kind of a retrospective of how did I fail in not making this school be successful when I had a commander that was behind me. We expanded the classes. You know, we had classes like statistics, where you had these kids that got Ds and Fs, but in statistics, they got A's. Why? They loved fantasy sports. They were awesome at it, but they weren't allowed in class because why? A teacher didn't recommend for you to be in there. Why should they be shut out? And the research showed that kids that took AP courses and failed had a better chance in college than without it. But even based on that research, there was a stereotype, well, Johnny's lazy and he's a skateboarder and he smokes pot. You're like, what does that have to do with him having an opportunity? So when I look at that retrospectively, I took my learning and at the War College, I just made the technology available. So like I taught with it, never forced anyone to do anything with it. When we did war games, we just sat back in a corner, just sat there for hours without people talking to us, <laughs> you know, think waiting for someone to, to finally do that. So when Joe came, just made it available. And Joe was the first person to say, I want to go, you know, and I don't want to dip my toes. I want to deep dive, right? I want to know, is this BS or is there something here? Is this going to help warfighters or is this just a Silicon Valley, 
you know, make some money and get going, right? And this is all stuff that I'd invest in my money. Luckily, I don't gamble, don't, you know, don't drink. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a vegetarian, so I don't spend a lot. Food's pretty easy, especially in California, you know, eating plants. <laughs> so my money really goes into building these kind of and supporting these, these capabilities. Joe jumped into it, and it was that ability to see Joe do it that change started because now we're at seminars, we're talking at strategic land power in front of two and three stars, and we're talking about Joe's journey. And the next thing you know, it, it spread to a, a class with Greg Cantwell, who leads a class in IRB. And in that class, Greg Cantwell had all the students working with this Tim system. And then he was helping them get ready for podcasts and doing research for you know generals down at Futures Command. So the spread was because we didn't force it on anyone. And that's exactly what we're doing now this year. We're going to be doing some courses where we're put together human machine teaming together with a data course called Data Informed Decision Making. We're going to collapse both classes together. Tim will co-teach with us. I've never tried it with another teacher, so that's going to be interesting, right? Dr. Kathleen Moore, who's one of our most talented teachers. And then to the students, it's a strategic advisor. How they want to use it or not use it is up to them. So we've got three case studies this year. We're going to study how Tim does in the data course, which is an elective. We're going to study, we're going to put Tim in a national security course where it's a, a simulation course where you're a advisor to the president dealing with a conflict in the South China Sea. And we're going to put it into a war game dealing with the Kwajalein Island area, the Kwajalein Garrison, and looking at the environmental impact on folks living there and also from a military perspective. And we want to see how people use it. So it's going to be an action research mixed methodology. You, you could look at it per grounded theory because we have a hypothesis after seven years of working with this kind of tech, but really two years at the Army War College. And then we want to kind of get an ethnographic perspective. But at the end of the day, is it increasing decision advantage? Is it increasing strategic thinking? And do people see this as an asset? And my colleague is a data science expert, so I'll come from how I look at it statistically right now. 166 people are participants over the last two years. I had a simple question. If you had Tim, would you put Tim in your rucksack? Would you not put Tim in your rucksack? Or are you neutral? And out of an N166, every person, regardless if they like the voice or the way it looked or the way it talked, all 166 said, I need this in my rucksack. It gives me that advantage that I'd want to have it in there. So I wouldn't call that hardcore scientific based uh, statistics and data, but from a, an everyday man's perspective, putting it into your rucksack, I think is a good uh, metaphorical there. So this year we're going to put a little more oomph behind it with the expertise of, of Dr. Kathleen Moore and the research team we have put together. So throughout our conversation, we've been talking about using this type of technology in education. Um, specifically with military, but still in academics. Do you see applications for this technology outside of an academic setting? So I see it as a great asset, but I'm tentative about these other applications, is if you look at Japan, you see this movement of replacing people with robots to take care of people. And I can't think of a more horrific thing. I have, I have a mother-in-law who's 90, and one of the most important things to her is touch. You know, human touch, people washing your hair, a hug. Well, in... Right now in Japan, because they have a, a lot, and again, this is not ill-intended. It's because of lack of resources. They're building robots, they have, such as the Now robot, right? It's this little robot we have in, I have in my house too. Instead of a human teaching Tai Chi, the robot's teaching Tai Chi. They're making robots that can basically shower and dry you instead of a human being because it's faster and more you know, effective to do that. And yet that senior who's 90 
to not have another human just towel your hair or comb your hair or dry you off or spend time with you. Imagine a world where you go to Tai Chi, you have a robot doing it. Then you get your meds and a little robot rolls in and gives you your meds. Your doctor comes in on a segue with his face and you're not even talking to the real doctor. You're, then you go take your shower and a robot's, you know, dispensing the shampoo and then it's drying you. Then you go back to your room and wow, maybe now you have digital avatars around your room talking to you. That's a dystopia to me. And yet that is a reality that is quickly starting to formulize and starting to come together in a country such as Japan, only because, again, they have a dearth of young people to care for elders. But what happens when that becomes a profitable industry here in America or other places? Are we going to start replacing these things that are human touch? I mean, San Francisco, right? We have places, hey, walk in the scanner. You don't need to see your doctor. Well, I'll tell you, there's something about having a doctor, having that little stethoscope and feeling it on your chest and the doctor touching your throat and feeling like someone actually is caring for you rather than having some machine poke at you. So I do see a lot of advantages from psychology, mental health, education, but all of them, I think we need to be straight on our ethics going in and we need to be straight on what is fact, what is recommendation or what is fiction. And that's why Tim is a strategic advisor. Tim is not the arbitrator. He is not the decision maker. In the OODA loop, it's in the Orient. So Tim helps you orient yourself within a decision and says, do you understand the terrain that you're in? Have you thought about these things? Do you understand the sentiment? And here is my advice. And that's it. It's up to you to take the decision. So I'm very tentative to answer that question and the fact that I see in my mind how it could be. But at the same time, I see the negative side as strong. Or in education, because there's a teacher as a partner or a student, it limits that that danger. So, Dr. Barry, along those same lines, how do you see this technology expanding in an operational setting for the Army and our adversaries? And are you guys working with Task Force Lima within the DOD to further facilitate the use of large language models? Uh, that's a great question. So, actually, we just yesterday had our first meeting with Task Force Lima. And it was fascinating because we were going over this project and how we're, we're dealing with cybersecurity, spillage, hallucination, how we can build better large language models. And you look at you know their charter, uh, I think that just came out on the 10th. And um, what they're doing is basically, you know, they, they're looking at this, this fact that large language models are just growing in popularity, right? And capability and impact, not just here around the globe. And so they, you know, this rapidly evolving space, they could not reiterate enough. It's critical that we coordinate experimentations, the findings, the guidance, and the messaging across the Department of Defense. So the CDAO is really taking the lead on this. And so the council wants to guide and prioritize the activities through this task force Lima and then disseminate those findings for technical integration use, both in the military and beyond. And this is where it really goes back to you sir, and the work that you're doing, because I'm, I'm following your work with ChatGPT and the stuff that mad scientists are doing. So in many ways, I see you all as the ones that are the cutting edge of innovation where you're going, right? I'm. If you look at a pie, I think we're, we're one little piece of it. I see what you guys are doing down there as a trade doc, as the much larger piece of the pie. So we're, we're sort of looking at what you're doing and seeing how we can kind of fit and explore the edges of it. So 
under them, they are really looking at how are we going to have responsible, reliable, large language models? How are we going to vet that? How are we going to assess and recommend uh, large language models use cases to say, hey, this is a good use case, which I think, for instance, where you're doing that, you guys have use cases that you could say, wow, that should be an exemplar. That's what Task Force Lima is looking for. You know, how are we going to go about experimenting with large language models? What's the metrics for performance assessment, right? You know, do we even have an inventory right now of the current and planned LLM efforts across, right? Every day, there's like a new LLM popping up. People are like, oh, they signed up for it. And then by the next week, they're gone or they're sold out. And you just built a whole infrastructure around it. And then looking at, you know, how do we plan for large language models and generative AI governance and oversight? So there's got to be some messaging strategy and messaging for the for the industry in itself. So we we joined the task force yesterday. Uh, we're on the working group with the the LLM, and we're going to start. You know, I think what they're going to do is basically ask them to really watch our three use studies. We have those three case studies, and just really follow us and and see. Hey, what what are we doing? You know, what what is happening here? Is this an exemplar? What is good? What is bad? So at the end of the day, how do I see it from the military perspective? Without a doubt, for the Army, strategic analysis and planning. I mean, I see these models are going to be able to assist us, be able to rapidly synthesize and analyze large volumes of data. You know, we're going to be able to take intelligence reports, and we're going to be able to get to the heart of the matter quick. And we're going to be able to tell intelligence from just social media chatter, right? We're going to be able to provide commanders with that nuanced understanding for whatever battle space they're in be it, you know, cognitive or kinetic. And then to help identify, you know, those emerging trends, those potential threats and opportunities for strategic advantage. You know, we need to seize, retain, and exploit the initiative here. And to do that, we have got to have decision advantage, right? We have got to have decision dominance. And that's where I see things such as Tim being able to do that. And then we have where it starts getting more tricky is in that psychological operations, right? And information warfare, the idea that, these LLMs can help craft these persuasive narratives and counter narratives in our in our IO campaign. So we can analyze our adversaries' propaganda. We can suggest counter messaging, and we can help strategize these information campaigns that align with our U.S. objectives and values and, and with our allies. Training and simulation. You can just imagine like these hyper realistic training environments where an IA and AI plays a role of an adaptive, intelligent adversary, right? And it provides soldiers like with a challenging and sort of uh, ever-changing scenario, being able to hone their skills and adaptability. And I, one one point about that, I'll tell you that I, I learned in a, in a strange way. When I was at West Point, and this is a, a side note where that can be a negative. I was talking to a, a special forces person, and I was really proud of myself as a teacher. I said, hey, there's a, at West Point, you have to dive off a, a really high diving board and go up through a bunch of like obstacle courses underwater. And this this young cadet was so super talented, but he was terrified of the water. So I thought, all right, so we use VR, right? And spray bottles, fans, make him feel like he was there. And, and this kid, we thought for sure he's not going to make it. He's going to drop out. He passes the test. And I thought, what a great example, right? He used VR, got over his fear, and was able to do it. Now, it, it took him many tries to do this, but he did it. And this uh, special forces guy looked at me and said, uh, Professor Barry, you have no idea how damaging that can be, what you just did, 
Right. And here I am sitting in front of, uh, you know, 20 people in class. And you can imagine my face is just just drawn white. Right. Because this this person is uh, someone I highly respect. And he was being respectful. And I said, but he, this is a person that wouldn't have made wouldn't have made it like he he like literally would his feet would not let him jump off the board because at West Point, they blow the horn. You got to jump. There's no such thing as, you know, take 10 seconds. And his point was this. We can't put our soldiers through training for every single scenario. They've got to be able to face fears on the fly. And I said, what do you mean? He's like, for instance, if you put him through that training a thousand times to jump out of a plane, you numbed him and now he jumps out of a plane. But how if I need all of a sudden I'm on a mission and it's like, hey, team, you guys, we got we need to jump out of the plane. I need someone to be able to have that much fear and be able to center their mind and be able to have that resiliency that they're going to jump without any ability to have had that experience before because that's the kind of soldier i need that's going to take the hill that's the soldier that's going to take that beachhead right that hasn't practiced and i had never seen it that way before so do i have an answer for that no because i'm thinking on one hand you would have lost what i see as a potential person that could go all the way up to the ranks right to become a colonel someday and, and he would have not passed and been now doing, I don't know, working somewhere as a manager somewhere because he couldn't pass a swimming test. And it's not like our army, our army folks have to be the greatest swimmers, right? <laughs> they have, they, you, know, we, you can get by without being an Olympian swimmer. But at the other hand, I do see that where you need to be able to face fear straight on and be able to forge ahead full of that fear. How do you overcome the fear? So that is something that I, I can't seem to uh, to figure out, that contradiction. And just lastly, this language translation and cultural insight, we deal with, with, I think we have over 80 countries represented coming into the War College. Having the idea that the IA can speak different languages and I can scrape the internet and the information from those areas, I can have the IA speak in those languages and translate and understand the culture. That would just be... Where I see from adversaries, disinformation campaigns, cyber warfare, strategic decision support, those things are all, all things that I see us being able to, to really be more effective. So at the end of the day, yeah, we may have these ideological differences and we're going through some growing pains. But as far as our national security, our homeland security, our ability to compete on the world stage, I'm 100% confident in our ability right now as America to be able to face anything that comes our way. That's good to hear. Um, and, and following up on that, actually, so this is not technology that's exclusive to America, even though we're using it and we're trying to get it into the force, though. Other countries, allies and partners have access to this type of a technology, but so do our adversaries. Are they using it in the same way that we're looking to use it here in America? Yeah, see, that's our great advantage. So, you know, we're, we're an open society, right? You and I can get on there and we can go on sam.gov and we see if people are applying for whatever project they're doing, you know, our patent office, and we can go see stuff. Our greatest advantage and our greatest weakness in some way is our open society, right? Because we know we get information out, it, it allows the enemy to get insight, but it also allows us to build better systems. So if you look at, I like football as an example, the way I see uh, adversaries such as uh, China, the way they look at AI if you look at football, they would run a play, let's say a thousand times. They would digitally clone, right, and, and do it, and do a, a, a simulation of something. And they would be more apt to go with the probability. It says, hey, 
this came out with a 92% chance that we should run the ball on a sweep to the right. And we've run it this many times. The beauty of America is that we don't just say, oh, we're not going to be driven by the data. We're going to be informed by the data. Just because it said sweep to the right 92% of the time, or just because you ran it on Madden and you're making your Super Bowl prediction, <laughs> Americans, we would say, yeah, but let's look at the nuance. If we sweep to the right, did you notice that uh, the defensive back on that side, that his wife was just uh, unfaithful to him and she's sitting in the front row with the man that she was unfaithful with? And uh, on top of that, he found out that his contract is being canceled after the game. And he's actually drooling and there's there's snot and drool coming out of his mouth. And he seems to have like superhuman power. And I know he runs a 4-6, but he seems to be running a 4-2 today and he's taking on everybody. Maybe we shouldn't run the ball that way. It'd be like, but the computer says, it's like, right. But the computer can't take in the nuance of looking at someone in the eyes and going, uh, hmm, maybe we should try running right up the middle. Oh, the computer says that's a bad idea. So I think what we have the advantage is that we, as Americans, have the ability, and what we're great as, is that we trust our intuition and our gut, right? So there's times, like, we, we've seen that before with, you know, for good or bad, we've seen that Pat and some of his greatest successes were gut, right? Like, yeah, I think those waves will be less than three feet. This looks like a gap. Let's do it, <laughs> right? Intuition and the ability to go off wisdom is a critical factor. And I think that our enemies, the more they try to automate decision-making, the better for us. Now, we, now, if we get into automated warfare, then that's a different category. So I'm talking about human in in and on the loop warfare at this point. You know, when you when you want to go that way, then it, then it becomes tech to tech. And that question takes on a different meaning, right? When you want to just go tech to tech, I still think we have the advantage, but I'm talking about where the, the human is still very much involved in the, in the battle space. So I think our advantage, again, is the ability of getting information. And you can be honest with it. I mean, just think of this. Regardless of your feelings about any of our presidents or any of our our folks in positions, we've got a plethora of information about these people. Go to North Korea. How much real information do you have on their leader that you could rely on as useful information? How much information about President Xi covers all of his weaknesses that you could use to actual battle plan? Are they, They're not going to put that out there. Where, for instance, at the Army War College, our colonel is going to sit there and say, these are my strengths, these are my weaknesses, so how do I optimize my strengths and minimize my weakness? Where our enemy is saying weakness, it's like Drago. Remember, if you remember the movie Rocky, it's like he gets punched once and gets a little bit of blood. It's like, what, what is this, right? I mean, if Drago could have just realized like, all right, just a little bit of blood, don't worry about it. <laughs> you, you are just a machine if you keep it up. It's the idea that you're not accepting the reality. You actually think that, that you can automate the human mind, and you can automate decisions that are strategic. It's, it's like economics, human behavior is fickle. And so I think that's our, our biggest advantage is our intuition and our, our ability to have great strategic leaders. And again, that's going to come back to how well we do in our education at our command colleges and at our war colleges and at our, at our undergrads at the, you know, at the Navy and, and West Point. So I am concerned about AI. I mean, I'm more. If we if we start doing IA more in education, I think we're going in a great direction. If we start going automation in education, except for administrative tasks, some emails, stuff like that, I'm very concerned about that. And I think we're in a very precarious position 
because if you start looking, if you're pretty competent using the tools, I can crank out with just putting a really good prompt in a paper that'll get me a B, you know, it's not great, but it'll pass. I think Joe Bufamati talked about that, right? I mean, the AI did all right, right? The AI passed, got a B, never went to class, got a B. That says more about us as educators and the need to change than it does about the AI. It should be nuanced enough where you say, in our class discussion between blank, blank, and blank, where did you see the synergy? Where did you see this based upon your experience in Jakarta? Well, suddenly the AI goes, uh, I don't I don't know, how, how am I supposed to do that, right? Because it's so nuanced. So our classes are going to have to become more nuanced. If they're just 25 PowerPoints that you put up on a slide and uh, you think that an AI is not going to be able to pass your class, then you're you're definitely mistaken. So in one way, I'm glad this technology was not around when I was younger, because I think many of the classes that I had to struggle through, like poetry class and, and some other classes that weren't in my, my sweet spot, I think I would have just came home and said, Hey, ChatGPT4, can you uh, take the role of Frost and write me an analysis of this poem, uh, pros, cons, whatever? And I, I think I could have got through almost all of undergrad with passing grades of C or above with doing minimal work. So we've got an education crisis before us. And I think the, the picture that, that you're painting or that you just talked about to me is education is now clearly a national security issue. You've touched on this topic a little bit throughout your other answers, um, especially when you were talking about your future plans for Tim and your classroom going forward, and also your work with Task Force Lima and their efforts to facilitate further use of large language models DOD-wide. But how do you see this technology evolving in the future? Well, as I appear in the future, uh, I just see a world where generative AI, in- including large language models, uh, just becomes a uh, ubiquitous part of our lives. You know, I think that if we develop it the way that we're trying to develop a Tim, and again, I see what we're doing. We're just trying to get the ball maybe to the 50-yard line and then pass it on to the next group of young people or, or talent to, to take us the rest of the way in. But I think it's going to help us uh, become a partner that's going to help us have a better quest in, for our security, understanding, and peace. And so I would say here's the vision. I see AI as a collaborator, right? Not as a competitor. Um, I think of these systems as intellectual force multipliers. I think they're going to allow us to do what we do best. I think creative thinking, empathy, ethical judgment, leadership, they're going to help us process the complex uh, information, the, the rapidly changing information in which we operate. I mean, my God, it's, it's, I mean, in the morning, I'll have a link for something for my paper only to find the link is dead at the end of the day because someone took their tweet off. Right. You're like, oh, but I swear, I swear to God that so-and-so said that. Well, there's no record of it. Right. Or here's an article on Medium or somewhere, and then they took it down. So it's constantly changing. And then to help uh, in this case, this is where, you know, IA and AI, though they're two separate things, right? They're not subcategories, which is another problem, right? IA and AI are separate. AI includes generative AI, large language models, all that stuff. IA is a whole different category, but together, like with AI pointing out patterns. And then IA working to help us get some potential insights, it's going to leave the decision to us. And then we're going to be able to do a future where hopefully we can get to a part where we're so context aware that we can anticipate crises before they erupt. So we like we can suggest like these proactive measures to prevent conflict rather than always being responding to it. 
And if we could do that, and, it could, and if we can have like Tim's help us navigate this intricate geopolitics in this just diverse world and just be this ever vigilant guide in the maze of international relations, that's, I mean, that's, that's the goal. Every student at, at the War College I see having this or at any institution and these, and these tutors or these, I see them as strategic advisors, real-time feedback, you know, suggesting readings, building on interests, showing where their weaknesses are, helping them craft their experiences to be more deeper and personal. But it, the issue, again, comes back to ethics. You know, they have to maintain the highest standards of, of conduct, and we need to, to do that. And just, just to get in why I see the future that way, the missing piece to all of this is that there's two things missing in all of these systems that I've seen. And one is chain of thought. When we have an, an IA respond, I don't want to hear a number. For instance, you say, you know, you ask a question, it comes back with 24. And usually the, 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 it's wrong, right? You go and you go, oh, things wrong. I want to see how did you work it out? So in other words, oh, you asked me how many MREs, what I need for blah, blah. I want the intelligence assistant to walk me through its thinking. Okay, so we're in this town and the logistics are that the MREs come from a boat to a truck to this. And I want to see all that in the answer. So I want to see that chain of thought. So that's the first chain the, is to make sure chain of thought is there. Two is that the large language model should not be this generic off-the-shelf commercial. So at the War College, we are building a corpus of knowledge that we're making an Army War College large language model. That is where we draw the knowledge from. So if I ask a question about Thucydides, it's going to go to the Army War College where our historians and teachers have put in the data and information. Then Tim is going to come in his answer, and he's going to say, well, listen, looking into my brain, here's my answer. And now he's using generative AI for the response, but what he's doing is he's not going word by word to make a sentence. He's going word by word because he's trying to match a thought pattern. So what you're doing is we're looking at large language models totally different. The idea is that large language models are role players. So what roles do you want them to play? So at the War College, do I want to talk to Dr. Moore? Do I want to talk to Dr. Devlin, who is an expert in environment, or Dr. Hillebrand, our IO guy? Do I want to talk to um, Professor Director White? And inside of those directories is their thought twin. So I'm going to sit with Director White and say, hey, is this how you think? Is this how you teach? I, I think if we talk about institutional memory, this is where it comes in. So when you're done with that, think about how cool this is. Sometimes you want to talk to one person. Sometimes you want to talk to an organization. Other times you want to talk to a team and other times you want to talk to the world. So when Tim answers, he's first going to answer from the War College large language model, which right now is just a corpus of knowledge. And then he's going to say, but since I only have this, let me jump out to the world. And you can right there go, stop. I know now that he's now going to go to places where he could, quote unquote, what we call hallucinate, which I don't, I don't really believe in that. It's hallucinating. I believe it's just doing its best to infer, but its inference is now going to go into the larger world based upon that. But you can now separate doctrine, that's word for word, and faithful from now inferring on doctrine. So that's what we're building toward is this idea, allowing people and machines to go beyond the next word into thinking the next thought. So what do we need to do? We need to have a pool of thought twins to give the system different roles to play that are reliable, which means I need people to sign off on that. So this year I'll be the guinea pig and I'll be, you'll have this setting that says Tim Professor. And that means that 
Tim is basically embodying my thoughts. So if I'm not in class, the hope is they'll say, Dr. Barry, there's a, a hostile that uh, has a civilian in custody and he's shooting on our, our platoon and he's wearing his uniform. He is a combatant, but there's a chance a civilian could die. But under just war theory, under law of armed conflict, under IHL, you have the right to shoot. Would you shoot? And my thought twin should make a similar decision that I would. Why? Because it knows the ethics I follow. It knows the laws that I would follow. And it knows enough about me. And that's kind of the trade secret, right? Like, how do you get that from someone to do that? And like in that case, for instance, you know, I would take the shot. Does that make sense? When we have discussions like this, uh, never do I fully understand everything that our guests say, but I think that's part of the reason we have these types of guests on here. I want to continue with the football metaphors. Uh, we're going to take this football now into the end zone, but before we get there, can you tell our audience a little bit about how they can follow the work that you're doing or get in touch with you or how can they see what's going on with what you're doing at the War College? On YouTube, I have a channel, also the email, so that you have some ways to connect. You know, if people can get permission, we, we've, we've had people drop in from our local community to come see some of our work or do special workshops just for them down in our uh, futures lab. So we, we've had people just come in and say, hey, can I spend three hours or two hours talking with Tim and, and learning what you do? So even local people, as long as they can get, you know, access and, uh, and approval to come on base, we want people to know more about what the Army War College is doing. So, yeah. Can we start getting our best and brightest generals to sit down with us so that we can accurately record and get them in there. This is how this project started. We wanted to recreate the strategic thinking of Omar Bradley and General Ridgeway, and it's in there. It's just a matter of us finding it, but we don't lose that institutional knowledge. So you can, instead of picking up a library book, you're picking up a thought twin that comes to class that interacts with you and talks with you. And is it gonna be perfect? No, but we need to get it as, as close as we can. And if you can sign off on it, so I can make a Matt Thought Twin, you know, today's show, Matt, you could be doing five shows right now, right? And saying, yeah, I feel comfortable doing five shows at once because I have a, a person monitoring the shows. And again, not taking over your job, you would interview the person that you go, this is too complex for my Thought Twin, <laughs> right? I'm interviewing Stephen Hawking. I'm not gonna, that's, the Thought Twin's not gonna be able to handle that one, right? But, uh, or I'm Howard, I have Howard Stern today. I think I need to be there for that one. I don't know if the Thought Twin is going to be able to put guardrails that are going to be necessary to do that. So that's that institutional knowledge, I think, is going to be critical. The world's not ready for my Thought Twin. Uh, <laughs> but that's that's why I brought Rachel into the fold. So uh, she, she can act as my Thought Twin and she can go out and do the podcast. Uh, but that that's great stuff. Um, Dr. Billy Barry, the man behind the robot at the Army War College, we want to thank you so much for coming in and talking to us about the technology that you're using that's having an impact on the Army right now and will in the very near future as well. So, sir, thanks again for coming on and talking to us today. Thank you. And again, shout out to my colleague, Dr. Kathleen Moore. She's a, she'll be, we're partners and principal researchers, so couldn't do it without her and the support of our administrators. So thank you. And I hope we get to do some research together coming up this year, Matt. Yeah, absolutely. This will not be the last time we talk, so everybody stay tuned for more. Well, it was an honor, both of you. It was great talking to both of you. You too. Thanks. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Billy Barry. You can keep up to date with all things MadSci by following us on Twitter at ArmyMadSci or visiting the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. Finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating or review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you accessed it. This feedback helps improve future episodes of The Convergence and allows us to reach a bigger and broader audience. 